Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut, which were made today by our new AI assistant, VD. Say hello to everybody, VD. Uh, speaking of which, we're going to be talking about two new AI ops assistants that are coming from vendors, plus financial results from Cisco, NVIDIA, and Palo Alto Networks, and of course, more IT news. Uh, we don't have any ads or tech bites today, but I will remind you, we've got new shows coming to the Packet Pushers Network, including Packet Protector, that is a security-oriented show with Jennifer Manella and me. And also starting this March, we're going to bring Network Automation Nerds onto the team. Network Automation Nerds is a podcast dedicated to all things automation with host Eric Chow. Uh, Eric's a network engineer and author of the book, Mastering Python Networking. You can find all these podcasts and more at PacketPushers.net. So it's not a security podcast, Drew. You've got to start saying cyber more often. Oh, right, okay. cyber. Sorry, and, uh, <laughs> you've got I'm to be cyber secure yet. Yes, no, cyber secure. Got to get with the fashions, Drew, and I'd expect you to announce that you'll be taking some sort of martial arts lesson sometimes in the next few months as well to uh, fit right in. Usually, it's Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but you know, any of the martial arts will probably be fine. I, I think it's inevitable. Yes, uh, <laughs> I think it's inevitable. <laughs> That's the price of admission these days. It's it tough, really is. It's a tough life. <laughs> <laughs> it's the things we do for for what we love. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, let's start with a little FU. Uh, last week, we had talked about a new AI virtual assistant from Checkpoint. It was intended to help you write security policies. That virtual assistant is trained on Checkpoint's product documentation and knowledge base articles. A listener wrote in to say, on training AI on knowledge base tax stuff, I've today had the pleasure of seeing how annoying this becomes for the first time. We made use of a productivity planning tool that has sort of Excel-based formulas for basic comparisons and calculations. They added an AI assistant, and he put it in quotes, to help you build these calculations. And one of our office people used it. Turns out the AI just gladly came up with some function that isn't possible. And because it obviously has no sources or reference, the office person had no idea how to continue and thought it should work. This is kind of worse than I found it on a blog post or internet because they just assume the AI is right and then stop thinking and looking further. End quote. <laughs> Which gets to the heart of AI. I think that's it's super accurate. And this is what I've been trying to talk about on the show is there's a there's a real dissonance about AI. If it's wrong at all, then how do you detect that? Because people right. will just say, this is it, right? And if somebody handed you a piece of work and said, this is what I did, can you check it? You check it. But if somebody says, you know, the AI generated, there's, there's this mental mode which says, oh, the AI must be doing it right. Or maybe right. the person who did it in using an AI doesn't even know. And so um, I think the challenge here is that AI makes a hard thing easy, right? Because it's basically autocomplete. When AI is generating images, it's just saying, well, what should the next pixel look like? What should the next pixel look like? And when you use it to generate words, it sort of says, well, if I have this sequence of words here in this theme, what are the possible words that right. go after it? What's the probabilities of each word that could go after it? Yeah. Exactly. And if you do the probability, you know, and the pathways, and, and if you can do enough analysis on enough data, you can accurately project the autocorrect algorithm, right? But we all know how quickly an autocorrect can go wrong, right. it's, it, you know, because that sort of model is the way that it, it functionally works. So. You know, we talk about AI and social media detecting misinformation or disinformation, and, you know, they don't do a very good job of it. And even as a human, detecting misinformation or disinformation requires a lot of mental focus to do it. So I think the challenge here is that one, if you start using AI, the thing that everybody has to learn as a skill is how do you detect when something is wrong? Right. Because most of the time, when you work through the process of building these formulas for the spreadsheet, you're actually testing the algorithm to test if it's the right thing. Does that make sense? So the process itself is actually the process of debugging the formula. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of the people building these AI assistants are experts in what they're doing and they are assuming mm. the people using them are experts. And so they are kind of assuming if it the AI, you know, especially these natural language query things gives you an output, you're going to look at it and inspect it and make a decision based on your own expertise about whether this is good as it is, or maybe just a starting point and need some refinement. But these tools are going to end up in the hands of non-experts who have no idea what's right or wrong and are just going to take the output and go yeah. merrily along and see what happens. And I, that's really, I think, the problem. Yeah. So the challenge here is that if you take the view that working through the process of building the formulas actually gives you a sense of accuracy, as you said, if, you, if you're not going through the process, how do you detect when it's not? So if you're using AI to generate your formula, do you now have to spend as much time trying to detect if it's flawed? Right. <laughs> right. The other thing um, is, are you actually saving any time if you can't trust the output at all? So right. it's, yeah. And so if you listen to the people talking about AI, then the thing that they talk about constantly is how much better AI is getting. It's just next week, it's going to be humongously better. You know, it's yes. always going to be, you know, and it's a little bit like the crypto people. It's a bit like the internet people back in the 2000s. It's a bit like the vendors for the last 30 years. It's always going to be better soon. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it does, but mostly it doesn't. So it's a little bit hard to sort of extrapolate when, you know, when will we solve the question is when will AI be more correct than human can be? And mm -hmm. the answer is not yet. And the second question is, if there's a mistake here, what's the consequences? So it comes right. back to risk analysis. If, you know, if this person made a mistake and it's rubbish data and nobody cares, well, then that's fine. But if it's more significant, well, then you've got a bigger problem, perhaps. Yeah. 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 So as always, we appreciate uh, getting in touch with us. You can do that at packetpushers.net slash FU, the FUs for follow-up. All right, let's uh, dive into some news. I know we typically save financial results for the backside of the show, but Palo Alto Networks is going through some tough times after they announced uh, Q2 results. So let me quickly review the numbers and then we'll get into the tough stuff. Uh, for Q2, the company brought in just shy of $2 billion in revenue, up 19% year over year with net income of $1.7 billion. Uh, the problem started when it forecast softer growth uh, for the next few quarters. Yeah, not even not even that much softer. It was still within the band of what they've told. Right. Um, they now expect revenue to be seven point nine five billion to eight billion, down from eight point one five to eight point two billion. So not a huge drop, two hundred million, sort of drop in revenue out of an eight billion total. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's worth knowing, of course, is that Palo Alto has a very high flying valuation. It's something like twenty uh, x multiple. So 20, 20 times revenue because it's currently valued at $150 billion market cap on gross revenues of $7.5 billion. Mm -hmm. It's just reached profitability in the last uh, this year or at points in the in this year. And so it's not really an established company. As a story for investors, it's a growth stock. It's not paying dividends like Cisco does or share buybacks and things like that. Right. So if it doesn't deliver growth, then it gets punished, which is what happened because after yeah. Palo Alto posted their financial results, their share price dropped by 25%. Yeah. Which isn't unreasonable because what you've done, and it's not even linked, it's like the share price drop doesn't relate to the, you know, it didn't lose 25% of its revenue or 25% of its profits because it doesn't have any. And and the revenue didn't go from 8 billion to 6 billion. It's a, you know, this 30, 30x multiple type thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, and it's a little bit distorted. And because the the hype for the, the stock market is so over-invested. But I think the kicker here, the thing that I really want to draw to you is not the, the financial use. You can go get that somewhere else. The CEO uh, actually said in the analyst call, he said, and I'm going to read this out verbatim because I think it's it's important. There are also some key trends within the industry that I think are worth highlighting. 
Palo Alto Networks is unique in seeing gains in market share in hardware firewalls or in the product space. This market is changing rapidly, with us seeing some of our competitors who had introduced price increases begin to roll them back. From our vantage point, we see the share shift happening in our favor because we see customers consolidating into our zero trust platform. So let's just stop there. So what he's saying is there are companies out there with point solutions who are now discounting to hold on to deals, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And because Palo Alto is one of the very few vendors like Fortinet and and a couple of other, you know, Zscaler to a lesser extent, Cisco a little bit, although their security is not very successful by comparison to what Palo's done and Fortinet's done. So what they're saying is because we have a portfolio, customers are saying, I don't want a point firewall. I don't want a point IDS. I don't want a seam. I want a whole end-to-end -end solution and I can converge this on Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. And this is driving their competitors to discount. And so what he's saying is, as he says further on, we intend to accelerate that opportunity. Along with incremental focus on return on investment and total cost of ownership, with single product vendors having challenges and articulating compelling value, they're also forced to have a platformization narrative. When they're not able to convince customers that their strategy is competitive, they're many times resorting to uneconomic pricing and putting pressure on transactions in this manner. Just to drop out, what he's saying there is they're discounting. So if you can't get the customer and the customer's saying, I'm going to switch to you know, this platform security vendor who's got all the products that I need, they're saying, well, we'll discount hard. And he's also saying uneconomic. In other words, he's hinting that the price drops are substantial. Right, that the, their competitors may be taking losses just to hold on to those customers because they've got point solutions and not a platform that Palo Alto says it has. Yes, and and we've talked a lot about platform. We've done many shows with, you know, sponsored shows, by the way, with Palo Alto and with Fortinet, who also have a platform um, where they have, you know, one of everything in the playbook sort of thing. Okay. Um, and they they people are saying, well, why am I buying this all from multiple vendors when it doesn't work together? And then, of course, we talked about Prisma and all the different tools that Palo Alto and, and Fortinet have put together to turn them into, you know, consistent dashboards, if you like. Mm -hmm. Not one dashboard, many dashboards, but, you know, a lot easier to work with than separating them. So let's just wrap this up. This is the final part of the quote. We're beginning to see rogue behavior by some vendors in the space who are keen to retain their customers, primarily in the legacy vendor space and the startup space. What does that leave, Drew? Does that leave? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> we intend to combat that with investing in this space and trying to accelerate platformization and consolidation. So what they're signaling there is that they have a platform and that customers are buying into a single platform for security. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a platform... This, the long-term success of this is that you have to have a critical mass of customers using the platform because then you can't leave, right? You, once you buy into a platform, it's very difficult to exit that strategy. One person's platform is another person's lock-in. Well, it's all, it is all of those things, right? Yeah. Um, so right now, I think Palo Alto is saying this is a critical point to grab market share. And so if you're going to go up against a competitor, if you're going to lose a deal just because of pricing – against certain vendors. This is not every vendor. They're not going to discount the pricing for everybody. But if you're you know, competing against Checkpoint, who just sells firewalls, for example, Palo Alto is going to get aggressive with that deal and say, we want you to bring this onto our platform. right? Uh -huh. And I see this as they're willing to match competitor pricing to ensure this happens. They grow their platform. Once people are on the platform, they're going to buy adjacent products. Uh, so I see this as a long-term strategy to compete at a key turning point in the market. And that's not something we normally see. When was the last time you saw a company say it was going to compete on price fundamentally? Now, it's not only going to compete on price, by the way, I'm just saying, but they're willing to start saying, we need to win deals now to grow. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think there are lots of big companies that like this platform approach and have been trying it. Cisco has been doing it for years. It's mm. not a surprise to see Palo Alto. I mean, I, I guess they see their platform as a competitive advantage. And so why not lean into it? Whether it is or yeah. not is up to the customer. But yes, that, that's their strategy. Yeah. And Palo Alto is a growth stock. It has to grow, right? So Clearly. they can afford to, <laughs> unlike Cisco, they can afford to be low on profit margin, right? Or, or if you're a startup desperately trying to reach profitability before the cybersecurity market implodes, which I think is you know going to happen eventually, there's just too many cybersecurity vendors and too much money out there for them to be realistically, for all of them to be successful. Um, they're saying now's the key time, so we're going to fight on price, um, get people onto our platform, and then use it to lend and expand. So there. Mm -hmm. That's yep. the interesting part about this. Eight, they're still doing $8 billion worth of revenue. That's roughly the same size as what Cisco does for its entire security business. So, you know, they're on. that's not unreasonable, I don't think, on, on the face of it. Yeah, not at all. And like I said, I think Palo Alto has got to lean into whatever competitive advantages it has by saying we're we're a platform where you don't have to have a bunch of disparate products that don't work together. Come on, come onto our platform. Uh, then they they lock in that customer and hold them for life. Yeah, and it's also good to see a company making a making a hard decision. This is not. It would have been much easier for Palo Alto to just sit there and say, "No, we want to have the revenue. We want to have the money. We're not going to cut prices. We're not going to you know we'll get those customers next time." Sort of debate. Um, it's not often. In the in the infrastructure space, you see somebody saying, "No, now's the time. We have to make a transition in our sales cycle, and and this is it." Because we've just seen so many price increases, like 30, 40, 50, 60 percent price increases over the last five years. At some point, there has to be a rationalization. I think if you're negotiating with vendors right now, you can afford to be brutal. We'll talk more about that in Cisco's and results a bit more later on. Yeah, although I do have to say, I, I sort of <laughs> object to uh, this statement by the the CEO here that the Cutting prices is a rogue behavior by some vendors. That, no, that's that's capitalism. Actually, it's not not rogue behavior. You, you may not like it, but it's not, it's not going rogue to to lower your price to to keep customers. I think the story there, Drew, is to you know think of the audience. You're telling the analysts, yes, I and know. ultimately the SEC. Um, you don't want to you don't want to make like suddenly drive a price war in the open market, like saying uh -huh. everybody's cutting prices, so we are too. That's much less compelling, right? That's true. Yeah, You're right. Uh, Got to pretty it up a little bit. You got to pretty that up a little bit and say like rogue vendors, which makes it sound like one or two. I mean, how many of those rogue vendors are out there, Drew? Who knows? We don't know. Right. Um, and they're not saying, of course, you know, like how many deals were discounted, you know, substructurally. Like Cisco, of course, is famous for de for discounts. You know? Totally, totally. They'll go from forty percent, fifty percent off, all the way down to ninety percent off under the right circumstances. Absolutely. So they've got that policy. They'll chase a deal if they think it's one they want to win. So yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up, we will move on. Uh, Prosimo, they provide multi-cloud networking and security services. They've announced two new AI-related offerings. First, if you, an enterprise, have built an AI-based application in the public cloud, Prosimo says it can optimize the networking among all the different components that make up that application because it's not just you know uh, one place doing one thing. You've got components here, components there, and over there. And so you need to make sure that all of the connections are one, secure, and two, performant uh, to make that AI application work. Uh, second, if you are a Prosimo customer, they now have an AI ops assistant. It's called Nebula. It lets you use natural language queries so you can get information that you would otherwise have to find by digging through logs or dashboards. For example, you could ask Nebula, show me all my overlapping IP addresses across all my public clouds, uh, or show me which targets are accessing the internet, or show me whether a workload running in a particular location with GDPR regulations just crossed a regional boundary. Those are the kinds of queries that uh, you can now run uh, these natural language queries into Nebula. 
Yeah, so this feels like it's following our thesis that you don't buy an AI, you add an AI to something that's already existing. Right. You, you know, you're not going to go. And so everything will have an AI attached to it in some way. And this idea of focusing AI down onto something that's more and more targeted is much more likely to be successful than, you know, jumping onto open GPT and asking it, you know, some general question to see if it'll give you the right answer. So this makes sense to me. And multi-cloud networking is a train is a train smash. It's absolute disaster zone. It's just it's just so messy out there mm-hmm. that there's so much room for a smart assistant to reduce some of the workload here for operations. Is that what they were sort of pushing into? Absolutely. That's the idea that uh, it, it, because uh, things can get very complex very quickly um, and because you could find this information, you know, if you went through dashboards and logs and so on, but they want to just make it easier to surface up uh, information as quickly as possible when you're investigating something or just want to check something. Ah, um, so working by the hour wouldn't be a good way if you're just asking the Like <laughs> In the old days, I'd go wandering through the dashboards for a few days. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> now I could just ask an AI assistant. It's, Is that it's an anti-consultant feature, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> See, now there's a... There's marketing. There's that's positioning. Marketing. That's right. Yeah. That gotta, is marketing right there. Uh, that's winning, winning that, strategy. That's winning. Absolutely. Mm. Reduce um, your reduce your consulting. That's right. Your, reduce your external consulting hours with our AI tool. Yeah. Um, less Gartner, more more value. That's uh, Passamo <laughs> says a Nebula is using BARD and OpenAI LLMs, and then it's trained on anonymized customer data to for them to for Nebula to build out its query context. But when a customer does run queries from Nebula, the results are just coming from the customer's own data, not a wider pool. And yes, I agree that um, the, the narrower you can make a data set in some ways might be better in terms of results. But I still think uh, with these natural language queries, we are going to run into potential issues because human language is imprecise. It comes with assumptions and intentions that may mm-hmm. not have been coded into the queries. Uh, so again, as we talked about earlier uh, with that example from an FU um, you you got to be careful with the the results that these things kick back, particularly when you're dealing with uh, not necessarily experts who are looking for advice or help from one of these systems. Yeah. You know, when you're in high school and the English teachers used to talk about the glories of the English language and how it was so expressive. But if you're an AI person, it's the worst thing in the world. It's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nightmare. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, well. Yeah. Too late now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Deal with it. Uh, and here's another AI assistant. Uh, this one's coming from Nokia. The company has announced that its NetGuard Cybersecurity Dome XDR software will soon come with a Telco Gen AI assistant. Nokia says the Telco Gen AI will be able to combine and interpret, quote, vast amounts of information related to cyber threats for more effective and efficient identification and handling of security incidents. Well, there's a theme here, Drew. I think I, I think there's an echo in here. Yeah, AI gets added to something, probably everything. It's not the thing you buy, you know, and you then you self-integrate yourself. It comes built into a product. This is um, a telco-trained LLM using Microsoft's Azure AI, which is AKA rebadged OpenAI, ChatGPT right. version. Yeah. Yep. But they've also trained an add-on for the query filters to make it specific for telco queries to help improve the accuracy of the responses. You don't want to be going in there and asking it, you know, write Python code for me to trade shares on the stock exchange. Um, but then they further refined it for cybersecurity in the context of telcos. So yes. if you go through and read all of the blah, blah, they talk about it's been trained on insights from 5G network architecture, 5G security practices, Nokia's telco domain expertise, plus things like 3GPP, NIST, 5G topology spanning, transport and core, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Right. So the idea here is, is that it's just querying a restricted set of data 
and the queries that you can ask it are also restricted. So it should give you a much more accurate set of results. So it's reducing that uncertainty around AI. And um, I just wanted to point out that this is a telco AI, which is something we haven't seen before. Yeah. Uh, Nokia is expecting this to be released in the second quarter of 2024. Yeah. Hello, listener. Getting into the cloud? Well, that's easy. It's what you do once you're there where things get interesting. On the Day 2 Cloud podcast, hosts Ned Belavance and Ethan Banks, that's me, explore the nitty-gritty of cloud operations from tooling and automation resilience and security, visibility and cost management, and more. We talk with technical leaders, practitioners, trainers, and consultants on all aspects of cloud operations to equip you with the information you need to address tech and business challenges in the cloud. So whether you're public, private, hybrid, or multi, let Day2Cloud be your guide. Listen at packetpushers.net or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, moving on. HPE Aruba Networking has announced a new partner program for telcos that serve small and medium-sized businesses. HPE Aruba wants to make it easy for telcos to sell uh, Aruba's Wi-Fi and switching gear to SMBs while also making it simple to manage and affordable. Yeah, can I, I think I'm going to be a little bit smug here because one of the things that I've talked about fairly extensively is that I think HPE is making a good push into the telcos as a market and who are, by the way, very well suited to manage service offerings. That is, telcos are generally incompetent at just about everything. And they are not likely to buy white box servers. They prefer to outsource maintenance and operations. And we, you know, we've talked about HP's Green Lake and Esmeralda and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And if they can package something up that the telcos can use, then they're likely to get, you know, embedded inside of the even more embedded than they already are. HP is um, inside a lot of telcos, providing a lot of the the five G and the four G stuff already. But they want to expand that. And of course, some part of buying Juniper Networks is about getting close to those telco markets so they can expand that footprint. If you don't think that's a trend, go and have a look at VMware by Broadcom. Just for the, have you noticed all of the documentation from VMware is now VMware by Broadcom? Have you noticed that? Oh yes. Yeah, Immediate. it's not VMware anymore. <laughs> it's VMware by Broadcom. Make sure you say the whole thing. Don't mention that you've got to put the trademark on the end. Um, and uh, Dell is also making a big push into telco market. So I've seen a very large number of press releases from VMware, Dell, and HPE about pushing into telcos as a market for them. And uh, But in this case, it's actually just so telcos can resell something to SME companies, which is important because telcos have a lot of SME customers in their networks. There's a huge market there, but they're not actually competent enough to produce a service that can target many small companies, and HPE might be. And so that's the idea here. Yeah, it makes sense for me, for HPE to be like, we, we want to sell as many uh, Wi-Fi access points and switches as possible. Let's partner with some telcos to go chase that SMB market that might not be valuable enough for HPE to chase by itself. So let the telcos do it. And then they collect some of the cash on the back end. Mm-hmm. Right. Moving on, big names in tech are looking to raise money to build new chip companies to cash in on the AI hype. A SoftBank is aiming to raise $100 billion to develop chips that can take on NVIDIA. That's according to a story in Reuters. And in a separate story, Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, is also out looking to raise money to increase the global capacity for chip making. According to a story in CNBC, Altman says demand is outstripping supply for advanced chips, and that's bad for OpenAI's growth. This is the most crazy story. Like Sam Altman, of course, is probably one of the largest egotists and narcissists out there on the on the venture capital circuit, right? He, he basically specializes in getting money and getting companies off the ground and then getting kicked out of them because nobody likes him because he's an objectionable human. But uh, investors love the idea of somebody who just, you know, he's just got so much exposure and so much history mm-hmm. that everybody who's got money just pretends to ignore it because he does make money at the end of the day. He's able to get involved in things. And he's decided that OpenAI isn't enough. So what's the next step? The next step is to actually make chips. Now, he's not talking about designing chips. 
and then getting TSMC to build them, which is what everybody else does. He's actually talking about getting trillions of dollars, true, not billions, trillions of dollars to build chip factories all over the world. Now, it's crazy. It's an, out, right? it's an outstanding amount of money. And I will say it's not necessarily that trillions number isn't necessarily coming from Sam Altman. I guess Wall Street Journal cited an unnamed source saying that trillions of dollars might need to be raised, but that number of trillions has now been attached to Sam Altman in the media. Yeah. Well, the only way that that works is if you are actually making a factory, right? You are yes. actually building, like uh, the, the the challenge here is, as you say, SoftBank is attempting to raise $100 billion to make AI chips. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's, you know, the, SoftBank, of course, is the same person that invested around $20 billion into WeWork and it blew up, you know, blew up $20 billion. Um, so if they're investing $100 billion, why would he need up to $7 trillion to make this work? And you know, just apparently just not crazy. I mean, even NVIDIA doesn't need that much money to design uh, its processes, right? right? And if I take another example, uh, this week or last week, Brock, that's G-R-O-Q, came out with their new AI accelerator processor, right? Mm -hmm. And Grokker is something like about four to eight times faster than AI, uh, than NVIDIA's GPUs, but it's special purpose at LLM. So its ability to process LLMs and to um, do generative AI on for LLMs is so much faster and so much more power efficient, right? But mm -hmm. it's only needed 300 million in funding to get that chip off the ground, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So why does Sam Altman suddenly need up to seven trillion to make this work? It's it's bonkers, right? There's, so it just feels like an ego trip. This guy's just gonna, you know, goes back to the to the early days of crypto where. We're going to make something and it's going to take, you know, it's going to be Bitcoin is going to take over everything, blah, blah, blah. And I think this guy's a lot of living in a fantasy land and getting away with it, might I add. Um, I think that this will just come grounded. There'll be a lot of hype and eventually it'll found on the reality that it's just not necessary. I mean, I think we've seen in venture world that you never get punished for talking a big number. And the bigger number you talk, the more people talk about you. Uh, and here we yeah. are talking about it. So <laughs> it was effective. My, you know what? I think that was true a few years ago, Drew, when money was free. Uh -huh. I think, I wonder if now that they've got to pay fire, you know, got to pay right. 8 to 12% for that money. Now that interest it, rates are higher, yeah. Uh, that's different, right? Yeah. And those interest rates aren't going to go down anytime soon in the next two years. So if you're raising any form of capital, it used to basically come, you know, as long as you could promise some sort of growth across a portfolio. Whereas now, if you want to raise money, I can just go put it in the bank and get five to 8%, Drew. Yeah. So if yeah. I'm going to loan it to you and take a risk, I need to get more, a lot more. So yeah. I, I think this is kind of, you know, this guy is really good at making hype and saying things that want, but also government money, free money, Drew. There's well, so here, many, you know. Yeah, I think there's three things going on here. One, um, obviously, we've been talking about the geopolitical implications of chip manufacturing. Uh, TSMC in Taiwan is 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 a risky place now to be making chips that the entire globe relies on. So having a diversified supply chain, it does make sense, you know, just strategically, globally thinking. Uh, second, NVIDIA is reaping the lion's share of the AI hysteria on the silicon side. Uh, and we're going to talk about NVIDIA's results in a few minutes. So it's not surprising that you could go out to investors and raise money with a pitch of, look how much money they're making. Let's get in on this action. And third, both stories note that money could be raised from Middle Eastern countries. Uh, these countries are, tend to be sitting a lot of petrodollars. Uh, chip mm. manufacturing could help diversify sovereign wealth funds built around oil. Uh, so I think there's a bunch of factors going into this interest in, in developing uh, a new <laughs> supply of chips. It's almost as if, Drew, almost as if, Dealing with the, you know, the oligarchs of the oil countries, 
is a whole lot easier to get money than if you had to go through a much more capitalist right. process of talking to a large <laughs> pool of investors, you know, like lazy way. And of course, those a lot of those people love those crazy stories. They just, you know, and they've got pots of cash for it. So, yeah. well, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. <laughs> All right, a couple more stories before we wrap. Uh, just a note, you may have uh, already be aware of it, but Fortinet recently announced warnings about critical vulnerabilities in several versions of its 40 OS software that allows remote code that could be executed by unauthenticated attackers. Uh, Fortinet has issued a workaround, but is recommending customers upgrade to non-affected versions. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes if you have Fortinet, but haven't heard about that yet, uh, something you should check on. Yeah, so I'm a little concerned that Fortinet is having a number of problems with these types of vulnerabilities, like pretty serious ones coming out. Um, they do seem to be responding well, uh, and hopefully they're communicating with customers well as well. So, but we did want to flag it because some of these are quite serious. Yeah. Uh, uh, remote code executable from unauthenticated attackers is pretty bad news. Yes, not a good thing. All right. Uh, Western governments are turning to financial sanctions and travel restrictions against criminal hackers that reside in foreign countries. For example, early this year, the Australian government levied sanctions against a Russian man accused in the data breach of an Australian bank. Uh, yeah, this is the actual story itself is kind of trivial here. I think what I wanted to sort of draw together was multiple threads where Australia, this is actually the Australia laid on the sanctions, but then the UK and the US government joined them, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So if this hacker actually um, goes outside of Russia, this is a Russian hacker, uh, you know, or cyber criminals generally have actually got various places that they can live where they're effectively untouchable. Russia is one, Belarus is another, North Korea. To some extent, China, although unsanctioned hacking out of China is generally not a smart idea. You're Probably risky, caught, yes, risky. risky. Uh -huh. But if you're living in those types of countries and you've made a fair, like a, a huge pile of cash, if you've got fifty to hundred million out of the out of a nice little cyber hack in cryptocurrency, you might want to decide that you need to want to spend it somewhere really nice. And if you're in Russia, that place is cold just about everywhere. So one of the reasons that Russia invaded Crimea, well, actually they annexed it and then sent in the troops to take it over. They didn't it more correctly, but they wanted it because it was a holiday destination for, mm -hmm. you know, it's warm, it's lovely. It's on the, on the coast there of the Mediterranean, you know, lovely summer destination. And so for Russians, they love to go and hang around Cyprus and Greece and Turkey and get into that warm area. But if you're on an international sanctions, you may find that if you go to those countries that suddenly somebody pops up and then you've been arrested and taken away. So this mm -hmm. is about raising the costs of being a criminal, even though you may not be jailed, but you might be restricted in some of the choices that you can make. So if the US or the UK or, you know, the, the Australian government can issue these types of things, then all of a sudden you can't go to London for a shopping expedition. All right. So they, they may not be able to catch you, but they can take some of the fun out of spending all your ill-earned gains. Yeah. And that may have an effect then on, people thinking to enter the industry. Not entirely sure that you could prove that. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's having a limited effect. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if you're thinking about entering the industry and you're seeing people have like, you know, they get slapped with travel restrictions, you might, does that make you stop? What's the point of being an international hacker if I can't go, go get some Instagram photos uh, in Greece? Is what yeah. You're yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. 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 If I can't get out there and have fun. Yeah. Well, maybe. Links in the show notes if you want to read up. Uh, InfoWorld's reporting on a cloud repatriation survey that finds that 25% of the more than 350 UK businesses surveyed have moved half or more of their cloud-based workloads back on-prem. A note that the survey was undertaken by Citrix. Uh, a plurality of survey respondents said the cloud turned out to be more expensive than anticipated. 
is there an echo in here somewhere? Right. Sure, there's an echo in here today. Like, we, really we bad. Said that before, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, this is sort of data for the mill. I don't think that repatriation is a significant movement yet, in the sense that mostly what I think is that customers are now much more wary of moving to the cloud. So, it's not so much about repatriating from the cloud. They're going, like, I don't want to move that to the cloud because that's the wrong thing. Or the cloud is expensive. I really need to look at the use case here to make sure I'm not going to get caught out you know, charges that I can't control. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that companies are also realizing that the cost of watching cloud billing is substantial. You know, there are companies out there who have multiple headcounts up to up to a dozen in some cases, just watching the billing in the cloud and trying to, that's expensive having those people there right. pulling data out and analyzing the cost. Or if you've got to buy, hire a service to do that, that's got real dollars attached to it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that all of a sudden becomes a part of your design process. And that's for many companies, that's crippling. So if you've got to go and predict how much your cloud expense is going to be, well, that's a, that's a reason not to do it at all. So I do feel like this is probably as much the repatriation, bringing stuff back on-prem, but also I think the secondary effect is preventing stuff from moving out. So we are seeing the success, obviously, of VM. This is where VMware by Broadcom wants to be. They want to say to customers, well, you only have to buy our foundation bundle. You have to buy everything. You have to build a whole cloud. You can't just buy vSphere and use our hypervisors. You now, you get, you've got the licenses for vSAN. You've got the license for NSX as part of your bundle. Now go out and use it. And they're trying to platform you, right? So once you're using the platform, they can lock you in and, and take extract more money from you over time. So I think that's what's happening here. AWS only grew by 13% last quarter, by the way. Now, 13% growth on a, on that size business, good stuff. Pretty good. But Pretty good. not the 40% or 60% that we used to see five years ago. Right, because that will, I mean, in some ways that was because it was new and it was starting from zero. So growth was always going to be big. And because cloud uh, was such a hype that a lot of people went in without really thinking about it. Uh, and I'd be curious to see if this uh, survey gets into the differences between sort of lift and shift applications that just got shunted into the public cloud and maybe weren't optimized for cloud versus net new applications mm -hmm. that may be able to take more advantage of cloud features and capabilities. Maybe it's, uh, those are less costly to run, not sure, but curious to see those kind of numbers. Uh, I want to see an article that says, what projects didn't go into the cloud mm -hmm. because the cloud was too expensive, right? Mm -hmm. That's the one I think that we're looking at today. At today, so yeah. And repatriation is the tip of that iceberg, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. Two more stories before we wrap. Uh, for Cisco Systems reported Q2 earnings recently, the company brought in 12.8 billion in revenue, down six percent year over year. Net income for the quarter was 2.6 billion, down 5% year over year. Uh, by business unit, networking revenue was down 12% year over year, although security, collaboration, and observability were all up, but uh, just by small numbers. Okay, so Cisco is having a bit of a tough time here. Um, when they announced their quarterly financials, we didn't have a show last week for which we apologize. It was just a holiday week. Um, so now we have this week, and Cisco announced its results the week before this. Yeah. Um, it didn't go very well. Cisco's sales have been falling for several quarters and are set to continue to go, fall right the way up until 2025. They've been telling analysts that customers haven't deployed the product that they bought already. And they've been saying that story for a while now, and I'm starting to see some sort of cracks in here saying, is it actually because they're not doing that? Or is it actually because Cisco is just not able to get not competitive in the market? And people are sort of starting to get a bit a bit thing about it, right? Mm -hmm. So let's see what, what Chuck Robbins has to say. He says, he and he says, and I quote from his analyst call, First, in terms of the macro environment, we are seeing a greater degree of caution and scrutiny of deals, given the high level of uncertainty. Then he said, second, as we discussed last quarter and subsequently saw in other technology provider results, customers have been taking time since the start of fiscal 2024 
to deploy the elevated levels of products shipped to them in recent quarters. And this is taking longer than our initial expectations. So jumping out, what he's saying there is customers bought a whole bunch of stuff, you know, in 2022, delivered it in 2023, and now it's 2024. They still haven't deployed it yet. And it's taking longer than Cisco thought, right? In other words, there's not enough professional services, not enough talent out there to get stuff in the ground. And customers aren't feeling an urge to get everything done on time. The final point that I took away from this, he said, third, we also see continuously weak demand from our telco and cable service provider customers. This industry has seen significant pressure and they are adjusting deployment phasing, which is weighing on our business outlook. So, so three things there. One, customers aren't buying a lot of product because they're slowing down. Two, there's a lot of product that is sitting on the, the docks at customers' premises. And three, service provider market is falling rapidly. We know that. Mm -hmm. MPLS is not a big deal anymore. Everybody's just moving to public WAN bandwidth, like we've been saying for years. And also 5G didn't work out, which we've also been saying for years. You know. Um, so anyway, so Cisco's now announcing that it's cutting 4,000 jobs worldwide. Hurrah. <laughs> yeah, well, typical. Uh, get, get a bad result, cut some jobs, uh, juice that stock price. So well, there was an article in a San Francisco uh, newspaper, though, Drew, saying that not only is this the rank and file this time, they're actually cutting headcount in the executive ranks. Ooh. That is unusual. Mm -hmm. Execs are rarely kissed out of Cisco because they have millions of reasons to stay. And if they get kicked out early, they may not earn out, like they may not be fully vested in their thing. Uh, the other thing that Cisco has done is they've moved the Splunk acquisition up to Q2. So it'll happen in the next three months. And I guess that they're hoping that, yay, we completed the Splunk, please buy our shares, might actually be a pitch that investors might like, but I doubt it. Yeah. I feel like the past few quarters, we've been hearing folks say that uh, their, their their results have been juiced by the fact that um, because there was a uh, components crunch during the uh, COVID crisis, customers couldn't buy gear. And then when that crunch loosened, everybody was buying lots of gear. And now maybe we've gone through that little pop uh, in all that buying and we are seeing the result of this, which is uh, a fall off in demand. Uh, and so cups, uh, th these tech vendors are going to have to digest that fall off uh, for probably a few quarters. So Yeah, I'm... I'm getting less convinced of that. I mean, that sounds like a pretty convenient, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, <laughs> whether that applies to Cisco or not and Cisco's issues with its customers and it's, you know, pricing complexity and all that, uh, that's, that's a different question. But uh, as a general thing, yeah. I think that's what's going on. Yeah, I, I find this harder and harder. I actually think the downturn, like if you're talking to analysts or the to shareholders, you know, in their usual cryptic, Guarded words. I actually think that enterprises have just stopped spending completely um, and have really pulled back, but they don't want to say that yet because they're hoping that something might turn around. Because mm. you don't want to, you know, see your share price drop because customers just aren't buying your products anymore. What you actually want to say is, is there anything else we can blame it on? I'm right. beginning to come more around to that view and say, you know, it's not. It, no, th th they're trying to say it's it's our customers, not us. I'm beginning to come around to the view that it's us and not our customers. Yeah, we don't have products that they want to buy. I mean, that's the thing about AI is it's so it's the only thing these the only hype cycle they've got to run on. Absolutely. And speaking of which, uh, the only company that seems to not be having trouble selling products to customers is Nvidia. They announced record earnings for their Q4 and full year financial results. We'll start with some numbers. For the quarter, Nvidia had revenues of 22.1 billion up 265% year over year. Net income for the quarter was 12.3 billion, up 769% over last year. 
Uh, and for full year results, revenues were just shy of 61 billion for the full year, up 126% year over year with mm -hmm. net income of 29 billion. Uh, its data center BU, which includes GPUs, led the way in the fourth quarter with 18.4 billion in revenue. Uh, NVIDIA beat Wall Street estimates, resulting in a 16% jump in its share price after it announced its earnings. NVIDIA is a case study in having a product that customers want to buy. So the thing that strikes me about their share results is, have you seen just how small their sales and marketing is? I, yeah, no, I'm not. It's tiny. It's like a couple of hundred million. And normally what you see is like if you go and look at, uh, say, well, Cisco, because we do talk about Cisco top, top of mind, at Cisco, you're saying 50 to 50 to 6% of gross revenue is sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. Not <laughs> not a research and development, not cost of product, not it's it's half. And for NVIDIA, it's like some tiny fraction. And so that's right. the difference between making a product that customers want to buy instead of something that needs, you know, a massive amount it's of effort flogging. to shove it yes. down their throat. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, the second part of NVIDIA's success is also that they keep selling the same product over and over. So once they've designed a product, once they've written the software drivers, once they've, you know, whatever, they just keep making the same product over and over and over. So the incremental cost of production is actually trivial. The chips are reasonably cheap to make, uh, provided you can go to TSMC and say, like, give me a squintillion of them mm -hmm. and they can produce them. But it doesn't cost NVIDIA a whole lot of money. And that's why they're making so much profit, like 12 billion in profit, I thought it was. Uh, for one quarter, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So think about that. You know, and if Cisco was working on those margins on 12.6 billion, they'd be announcing like a, like an $8 billion profit, which is extraordinary, which is not not the case, of course. They're doing about a, a $2.6 billion profit. So that's sort of like the success. Now, I don't know if you track the share market very closely, but did you notice how nervous everybody was right the way up to NVIDIA's results? Did you see the hype and the, and I the did. people? Yeah. yeah, it was fascinating that the, the Wall Street was essentially like in a panic on whether NVIDIA was going to beat expectations or not. And if they didn't, it was going to bring potentially a lot of other companies, their share prices down with it. Um, I, I did some reading on this. A story from Bloomberg said, quote, just NVIDIA alone has been responsible for one third of the NASDAQ 100 indexes gains this year. Uh, so any sign of softening <laughs> from NVIDIA could have had wider repercussions. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it's a little crazy. It's a lot of pressure on NVIDIA. Yeah, that's right. And the same thing applies to uh, what they call now called the Magnificent Seven, because everything on Wall Street has to have a name. Um, that is Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. Now, obviously, Tesla has fallen uh, 30% over the last year. Their stock has really, really fallen after they announced price decreases on the, on their cars. And so mm. their gross revenue, you know, doesn't look to be as good. And they're trying to go for a volume play to, and to make their product become the default product out there by discounting heavily. And they also don't have any new product by comparison to some of its competitors. But one of the challenges is that these companies are, are something like 50% of the growth in the S&P index right. over right. the last year. And if any of them stumbles and you're using an S&P tracking fund, you could see the tracking funds fall by, you know, a 5% fall in Apple will result almost more or less a 5% fall in the S&P index at this point in time. Right. Because it would take down all of the others with it. Yes. The assumption would be is that if one of these seven has bad results, all the others will go with it. And there is really a sort of a, there's a hype here about how awesome it is that the S&P is now back at record levels. But the fear is real because it's only with seven companies. The rest of the index is not really growing or they're not, you know, you're not seeing five, 10% growth you know, down into the other 500 stocks. It's all because of these top seven stocks. Yeah. 
Yeah, the other thing is that uh, we are definitely in an AI hype cycle, so there may be some more good quarters ahead for NVIDIA, but eventually uh, people are going to find out that many of these AI products just aren't that good. Uh, the bloom is going to come yeah. off the rose at some point, and NVIDIA is going to have to deal with that fallout. Well, if you follow what I said at the top of the show, Grok, which is a startup on $300 million worth of funding, came along to build an AI accelerator just for LLM generation. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm beginning to see is this idea that GPUs might be a general purpose AI chip Mm -hmm. in the same way that CPUs are a general purpose computing chip. Mm -hmm. And then there are accelerators out there. So what GPUs were for graphics and DPUs are for IO and, you know, and there's a range of others. Are we going to see a bunch of custom silicon to accelerate particular type of inference around for LLMs or LAMs or, you know, any of the other in, uh, generative models that we want to do? And Grok did it with just $300 million. So yeah, it is absolutely, to my mind, there is a there is a risk there. Yeah, for sure. If they're just going to be the general purpose GPU and nothing special, nothing outstanding, aside from their software drivers and some of their portfolio, you know, the software portfolio, but you can go out there and a, a few people from Google who worked on the TPU go out and start another chip based on the lessons that they've learned, and they can displace NVIDIA and, and run four times faster than NVIDIA hardware and NVIDIA software using on, you know, from OpenAI. There's there's real questions to be raised in my mind. Yeah, when your uh, net income grows seven hundred and sixty nine percent for a quarter uh, year over year, people are coming after you. That that's a lot yeah. of money. That's a lot of opportunity. You're not going to yeah. be sitting in that pile by yourself. That's a lot of that's a lot of poop in a bin that smells really really delicious. And there's going to be a lot of flies coming in to steal your poop. <laughs> that's top notch analytics right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that uh, does wrap up our news for today. Greg, where can folks find you online? Uh, I've been hanging around LinkedIn a little bit, posting out little little nuggets of wisdom there, and but also on uh, Twitter. I'm still there for a while. I'm sort of winding it down, and uh, I think I won't be there for much longer. But for now, twatters. All right. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm Drew Conry-Murray and blogging at packetpushers.net. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of Network Break. And as always, we welcome corrections, comments, or even commendations. That's at packetpushers.net slash FU, where the FU is always for follow-up. Thanks for listening.